0: I woke up Tuesday morning and immediately I started having a great day. And if you live in New York or you're a fan of a New York sports team, you should know that whatever disagreements we may have, whatever our fandom is, we can all come together at the expense of any team from Boston, Massachusetts. And on Tuesday morning, News dropped that the Boston Celtics are having a little internal drama. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to hit the music real quick. And we're just going to take a moment to enjoy this little bit of drama. man that this is this is great i am having greatest time right now if i had the time i would have just put on the 10 hour loop of the crab rave but unfortunately um that's not something that i have the luxury of doing anyway let's go ahead we got the jokes out of the way since we got the jokes out of the way let's go ahead and dive into what's going on with this story because it seemingly has come out of nowhere now As I mentioned beforehand, the Boston Celtics are having a little bit of internal strife to begin the season. Wow, that really set my fucking hair. So the Celtics are two and five at the time of this recording. As I predicted, heading into the season, they would fall off this year. So I'm not surprised that they're off to this. I'm not surprised that they're off to such a struggle this season, even though Jason Tatum is playing. Kind of, well, Jalen Brown has been better to begin the season, but Marcus Smart, uh, following, what was it, like their loss or some shit? I'm just going to go ahead and open up the article. Originally, I had gotten quotes from Twitter, but now I'm on Forbes, and this is courtesy of Chris Grenham? Grenham? I think that's how you pronounce it. Chris, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but this is... This has been something that multiple reporters have talked about. The article begins, Things were going well for the Boston Celtics on Monday night at TD Garden. They held a comfortable 17-point lead over the Chicago Bulls with 30 seconds left in the third quarter, but it all came crashing down in a catastrophic, catastrophic fourth quarter collapse. Coming off two straight losses to the Washington Wizards, this felt like an important early season matchup for the Celtics, and early on, they treated it. As such, Boston stepped up to the plate. Oh my god, fucking dropped the pink hat. <laughs> Boston stepped up to the plate. Ball movement, good pace, and an emphasis on spacing. They were finding success in ways they hadn't over the last few games, and it was reassuring to see them respond to some early season adversity. And then it wasn't. As we know, and as the author just mentioned, the Celtics were coming off two back-to-back losses to the Washington Wizards, one of which I think went into double overtime, or I can't remember if that was the game against the Bulls, but... Boston has already played three overtime games in seven in seven contests, adding up to five extra periods and about 25 extra minutes of playing time. Well, obviously not all of that has been um, accumulated by the players, but some guys are already accumulating unnecessary minutes. The fourth quarter saw a little ball movement. When Chicago tightened up defensively, Boston turned, turned toward forced isolation, specifically for Jason Tatum, a scenario he has struggled with in through his first six games. When the offense had an extended roadblock, it leaked over to the defensive end where the Celtics put up a little fight. The Bulls outscored Boston 39-11 to in the final frame, shooting 81% from the floor. The Celtics did not have a single defensive rebound over the 12-minute span. It was about as ugly a loss can get in a team's first 10 games. That is horrifying. As a Brooklyn Nets fan, as someone who has seen piddling rebounding performances, I don't think I've ever seen anything as bad as that. To go an entire quarter without one defensive rebound, it's it's literally insane. It's insane. There's no other way, there's no other way to describe it. To not get one rebound, I get getting blasted, like giving up 39 points or whatever it was, even allowing 80% from the field. I can see, especially if you're just giving guys easy looks around the basket or if, you know, they just get hot and they make a bunch of threes. But after this game, Marcus Smart went on a little bit of, a, well, not a little bit. He went on a rant addressing some of his teammates' selfishness. He says, quote, I would just like to play basketball. Every team knows they're trying to go to Jason and Jalen and every team is programmed and studied to stop Jason and... And Jalen, I think everybody's scattering report is to make those guys try to pass the ball. They don't want to pass the ball, and that's something they're gonna and that's something they're going to learn. <laughs> Smart then went on to note how Boston's two pillars need to take a step forward in their creation for both themselves and their teammates. Quote: They're still learning, and we're proud of the progress they're making. But they but they're going to have to make another step and find ways to not only create for themselves but create for others on this team to open up the court for them later in the game. Where they don't always have to take those tough shots or take tough tough matchups when they do get the one-on-one or see a trap. Just reading that, it's something that we've been asking them to do and they're learning. we got to continue to help those guys do that and to help our team. So, oh my god, he's still going. There's only so much I can do without the ball in my hands. I'm just standing in the corner. We're running plays for our best players. Every team knows that. They do a good job of shutting that down. We can't allow that. When they shut that down, we can't keep trying to go to those guys. We got to abort that and find another way to give them the ball in the spots where they need the ball. Like I said, for me, I can only do so much just standing there in the corner or when I come up and give the ball away. I do everything I can on the other end to try to combat that. I try to talk. I try to make plays, get those guys the ball when they need it, where they want it. Smart is 100% correct in these comments. And from what I've seen on the internet, this is really the case of right message, wrong guy. Because Marcus Smart is having a horrific offensive campaign. I think he's averaging like 8 points on 30% shooting from the floor. I know it's definitely below 40, but it's it's one of the worst offensive campaigns he's had since coming into the league. And this is a guy who's not known for his scoring prowess. He set a career high last year, I think, at around 13 points. He did show really respectable percentages from three, like something that the Celtics needed desperately more than anything else. But the Celtics are running into a problem that I don't think anybody, well, I'm sure people foresaw this, but I don't think they imagined it would be such an issue. With Kyrie gone, with Kemba gone, you don't have a legitimate point guard out there facilitating the offense. Jason Tatum, as great of a scorer as he is, he is not the type of forward who's versatile enough to be the main facilitator for this team. The same thing is true with Jalen Brown. As it stands, Marcus Smart really is the de facto point guard whenever he's out on the floor. And someone who is a relatively good passer, as Marcus Smart is, should be able to say things like this. Because ultimately, the Celtics' reluctance to pass, and it's not even necessarily that they're reluctant to pass, because statistically they are still they're actually passing at around a similar rate compared to last season I think they might actually be better I checked this morning and it was like they're averaging around 290 passes made per game which was a couple more than the previous season but that's just that's just passing that doesn't necessarily translate to offense because they don't have really high assist numbers I think they're at about 23 a game which is a little bit less than what they did last year, but even then, this team was not a particularly pass-heavy offense or an offense that generated a copious amount of assists, like the kind of passes that lead directly to field goals. Even then, even back last year, a lot of it was, okay, give Jason the ball and see what happens, and to Jason Tatum's credit, he made a shitload of incredible shots, Last season, but this has not been the case. It's not been the case to begin this campaign. He's at like 25 points, shooting about 40% from the field. He's defenses have caught up to the Boston Celtics. Eventually, defenses catch up to all the great players, and it falls on that player and also the player, also the team and everyone around the player. But the player has to be receptive to changing his play style. Jason Tatum has to be receptive to the Celtics running the type of offense that they ran when he was younger and even before he got there, a Brad Stevens-type offense. Lots of movement, a lot of set plays, just passing the ball around until you find the best shot possible. And right now, they're not doing that. As Marcus Marcus Smart alluded to earlier, Jason and Jalen Brown in particular, and it's not just them, but since they are the two highest usage guys on the team, they're the primary shot creators, it all goes back to them. And according to Synergy, Boston is averaging, well, they're on a percentage basis taking more isolations than last year. They're about 10% this season compared to 8% last season. 2%, especially 8 to 10, is not that big, but those compound over the season. Like, first it's two plays, then it's four plays, and then it's eight, and then it's 16. It adds up, and those are more and more missed opportunities that... The Celtics aren't capitalizing on and ultimately the way that you fix this is by going out around the trade deadline and shopping around that's their biggest issue right now is that Boston's lack of a point guard is more detrimental than I think anyone predicted like there were, I don't want to say, I don't really, I don't know how many people expected the Celtics to get off to such a bad start, like this bad, to be two and five, seven games in, with really just not having a, not having left a good impression on a lot of people. Like, even their first game against the Knicks, we knew that the Knicks were going to be a competitive team. But I'm also not so sure that people thought they'd be able to hang with the Celtics or at least force double overtime against the Celtics. Like that right away was a wake up call. And considering, you know, Jalen Brown had just gotten out of COVID protocol, you know, his legs weren't underneath him. His stamina wasn't up. Like that, you could easily just write off that loss. And then again, you don't want to overreact because it is just the first game of the season. But as time goes on, (laughs) it's going to get worse and worse for the Boston Celtics. Also, additionally, there are a lot the teams that they're going up against aren't even like fully locked in yet. The Knicks, the Knicks team that they played on opening night is worse than the Knicks team that they're gonna go up against whenever the fuck they play next. And even the Knicks now, after seven games or six games or whatever, have made serious leaps and bounds. Same thing with the Washington Wizards. The Bulls. I know the Bulls are the top team in the East or at least tied to be the top team in the East. They're only gonna get better. And keep in mind, they're playing with Zach Levine, who has a torn ligament in his thumb or something like that. He has a hand injury that is hampering him, even though he might not look like it. They don't have Patrick Williams right now, who's going to be out for the next couple of months with an injury of his own. Come December, January, February, the Celtics can easily get stomped on nightly because, again, the East is way more competitive than it's been in previous seasons. Look at teams like Washington. The Wizards are way better than anyone could have predicted. The Charlotte Hornets, the Indiana Pacers. And of course you have Brooklyn, you have Milwaukee, both of those teams who are still trying to get their footing underneath them. Like they're not at their peak yet. And then Atlanta. Uh what's another I think I said Miami already, but if I didn't, Miami. Like things could get potentially disastrous for the Boston Celtics. And the only way that they're going to mitigate it is by adding someone who can play point guard for them and someone who can run an offense and initiate offense and try to get shots for Jason Tatum. Not just like get shots, but get easy shots for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Because even though Jason Tatum is damn near averaging 26 points a night, what good is it if you're shooting 39.5% from the floor? It's going to take you... 24 shots to get that and you're not getting to the free throw line at the same rate because of how the league is adjusting how they call fouls it's going to be it's going to be very uh very interesting to see how boston comes back from this uh i don't know like i i want to refrain from not jumping to conclusions because again like i know that i know that i have a distaste for the boston celtics just you know being from New York, but I hate making such bold claims after seven games, but like the thing is Boston has shown minimal redeeming qualities to start the season. Granted, I could be missing it because I'm not following the Boston Celtics as closely as I am the Nets, for example, but just reading that one little blurb about their fourth quarter collapse, watching them play the Knicks on opening night, seeing them get dumpstered by the Wizards in back to back games. It's not look it's not looking good, man. It's not looking good. And you know, I'm looking under Chris's tweet. Ugh, I'm looking under Chris's tweet. And as I mentioned, right message, wrong person. Marcus Smart shooting 25%. I don't know if Mark I don't know if Marcus Smart is talking about passing to him necessarily. But Al Horford, Josh Richardson, like I know Josh Richardson isn't having the season that, you know, many projected him to have, but he's shooting a respectable percentage from three. I think the last time I checked, he was around 37 percent or so. And just even having that type of player on offense can unclog so much, so much for your team. But ultimately, I don't I don't know what's going to happen with the Boston Celtics, because it just seems like they're stacking up all these negative traits. You have Marcus smart already airing out. I don't, I don't even want to say airing out dirty laundry, but talking about problems, seven games into the season that maybe you'd want to keep in the locker room. But then again, maybe going public with it is his way of being like, listen, I don't give a fuck. If people know what's going on, like you guys need to pass the wall. Maybe not to me, but to somebody else because it's not happening right now. They're not playing at the level that they're not playing at the level that they should be. I know I was one who was, you know, didn't expect the Celtics to be that good this year. But did I expect them to be this bad? No, I didn't. So I don't see much changing unless they go out and find somebody anybody to play point guard for them. Fuck, even if they wanted to bring Isaiah Thomas back, I mean that's better than that's better than their current situation. Anyway, there was a lot that I wanted to uh, discuss outside of the Boston Celtics as well. <laughs> One of them being that Draymond Green says that he's enjoying basketball a lot more again. So this was courtesy of Nick Friedell. They published this on ESPN on Halloween and basically because this article is kind of lengthy, I don't want to read the entire thing. Draymond was quoted as saying this after the Warriors beat the Thunder this past Saturday. Can I also say how satisfying it's been to watch the game of basketball without all those bullshit calls? I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to curse in interviews, right? Can I say how satisfying it is to watch the game without all those terrible calls? Guys cheating the game and grabbing guys and getting the foul. I've been really enjoying watching basketball this year. I kind of I kind of stopped watching the NBA a bit because it was just too flailing and flopping and guys cheating the game, getting free throws. So I think it's been great, yada, yada. This is how a lot of people feel, myself included. And I've gone on this show. I've vented about James Harden in particular, how he's getting kind of fucked, railroaded by these new rules. Of course, that changed when they played on Halloween. He had something like 25 free throws. No, not 25. What was it? It was like 14 or something. It wasn't Halloween. It was the Friday. Of Halloween weekend. But overall, there are a lot of guys taking significantly less free throws. I forgot who published the chart, but I think it was like 538 data showed that Harden was down taking free throws. Trey Young was down taking free throws. I think Bradley Beal was down taking free throws as well. Across the board, the NBA and their officials are trying to basically not call any foul that isn't blatant. And even then, like, they are missing a lot of blatant foul calls, and I think it's just them trying to do a little bit too much, which is weird that it has to go to that extent because you kind of know the shots that—or you know the plays that you're not supposed to call fouls on anymore. You know, when someone like James Harden is back into the basket and, you know, he feels the guy reach in and pulls his arm up real quick and he hooks the guy— That is what you're not supposed to call as a foul. And to the official's credit, I have seen James Harden do that move on multiple occasions. And I'm like, "Mm, I want the foul, but I know that he's not going to get it. And I only want the foul from like a viewing perspective because, you know, James Harden's playing on my team, this, that, whatever. It's like, that would be a foul in the past, but times have changed. I do think that the games are a lot easier to watch, at least when everyone is playing optimally. So I, I'm here with uh, Draymond. There's really not much more that I can say. Um, you can 100% feel it because you don't have guys doing the garbage to try to draw fouls anymore. I think this game was turning into who can draw the most fouls. Nobody wants to watch that, and you definitely don't want to play in a game like that, so you can feel the difference out there for sure. And then Steph, Steph chimed in and said there's a lot less egregious plays. Quote, I've been watching around the league, and for the most part I'd say about 9 out of 10 calls – that used, to, that used to go the other way are not for good reason. There's probably some that are still in the gray area where they all get more consistent, but it's great for the game. I know a lot of fans are loving it. I'm just, I'm curious to see like how this is quantifiable or even if it is quantifiable. Like, cause you can't really go off of like TV ratings because the NBA has had rating issues for the last couple of years for reasons that are, Simply beyond the game, like the aesthetics of the basketball game, of the game of basketball. I don't know if it's political. I don't think it is. I think a lot of it has to do with a lot more young people watching the NBA, or at least it being a younger person sport, because they don't draw the biggest crowds. I mean, they just seeded their Thursday night telecasts on TNT to Thursday night football, which is. Which has been the redheaded stepchild. It has been. It is the redheaded stepchild of the NFL schedule. It's Sunday, Monday, Thursday. Thursday is third only because they don't play on other days. Like, we'll even put it behind Saturday Night Football for the three weeks that they have that. Everyone despises Thursday Night Football because it is objectively the worst game of the week. It's always the worst game of the week. Even with two teams. Like, we were watching Packers, Cardinals last week. That game sucked. That was a fucking terrible game made even worse by the fact that Devonte Adams caught COVID and wasn't able to clear protocols. Like the fact that the NBA is seeding Thursday night to that shows that their ratings are, you know, bad enough. I mean, people enjoy watching it. Don't get me wrong. And I just, I didn't realize the other day that the NBA has more than 60 million followers on Instagram. Granted, it is all about how much money the league makes at the end of the day, and television deals are a bulk of the profits or a bulk of the revenue for the league. Um, I mean, I, dude, the NBA just like put out a poll, like, how do you think the officials are doing this year? It's like, are they good? Or are they bad? Do you still fucking hate them? Do you still hate Scott Foster because he fucks your team? Either way, even without having to abide by the new foul calls, I don't know. I'm I'm also just interested to see. How long it takes for the officials to fully adjust. Just as it is the players to fully adjust. Because there's always an adjustment period for the teams when they're taking the floor. But I don't know if there's necessarily an adjustment period for the officials. Unless they're trying to adapt to a new rule change. So maybe around Christmas, January. Once all that gets smoothed out. And you know they're actually... Only zeroing in on the plays that aren't supposed to be fouls, I think it'll be, I think it'll be even better. And as someone who has been very vocal about the, you know, the officiating being a reason that kind of keeps people back from getting in to the NBA, I think it's, I think it's an overall benefit for the league. And one thing that always gets brought up is how these new these new rules are kind of how do I say this. They're definitely having an impact on the offense. Teams are shooting worse overall. Teams are shooting worse from three overall. But there is something else that has been kind of contributed to the uh, tr- the decrease in all-around production, I guess. This came courtesy of Paul George. Now, something that it doesn't really get talked about much is that the NBA recently switched the official game ball that they used. It went from Spalding to Wilson. Wilson is now the official provider of the NBA's game ball. And Paul George, someone who scores a lot of points, someone who's been scoring a lot of points for the longest time, someone who is one of the more efficient volume scorers in the NBA, potential 50-40-90 guy. I mean, this guy knows how to get buckets. He came out and said that, you know, maybe the ball switch is contributing to a lot of the offensive woes that Teams and players are having, and he made this point. This is courtesy of Sports Illustrated. Not to make an excuse or anything, it's just a different basketball. It doesn't have the same touch or softness as the spalding ball had. You'll see that you'll see this year. There's going to be a lot of bad misses. Now, in response to this, C.J. McCollum or no C.J. McCollum? What the fuck is his name? Uh oh yeah no yeah C.J. McCollum. Wow, I'm dumb. He's going to talk to think the NBA about uh what is he saying? CD McCollum, the president of the players' union, suggested players are still adjusting to the new Wilson game ball. So there are multiple people who have brought attention to this. And of course there are some notable guys who got off two slow starts this season. James Harden was one, although I don't think the ball had much to do, um, especially in comparison or when talking about His hamstring injury just him being out of shape but his shooting numbers weren't particularly good throughout the first couple of games Damian Lillard is another one in this article it mentions how Lillard is averaging just 18 points and shooting 35 percent from the field 23 percent from three I mean for a guy who is routinely around 45 46 47 percent that is you know a significant drop off that is you know kind of attributable to early season struggles but If you've played basketball at any level, you know how much of a difference the different kinds of basketballs... I just... I totally fucking forgot that thought. If you've played basketball at any level, you know the kinds of differences that the type of basketball can have on your performance. Like, for instance, when I was in high school, this was back in, like, 2011 to 2014, 2014 2014-ish, the game ball that we used or that I guess the county used, or I don't know if it was like Long Island used. We used the Spalding TF1000. It was a decent, it was a decent basketball. You know, I it didn't affect me either way because I sucked. I, <laughs> I was going to suck no matter what kind of basketball we had. But then you go to the gym, or you go to like LA Fitness, or you go to the YMCA, or you play in a paid league outside of school, or you go to the park and you play with your boys. And then someone brings the Nike Elite, basketball or the Wilson Evolution. I in my limited experience, I do think that the Wilson the Wilson Evolution is the best basketball on the market. It's absolutely absolutely perfect in every regard. But I don't think that's the one that NBA players are now using. And I don't have any experience with the NBA game ball to tell you if anything that Paul George is saying is true. However, since Paul George is someone who has routinely averaged upwards of 20 points per game for his career, even going as high as, you know, 28, 29, 30, like this year, for example, I think that his opinion is valid. And he's not saying that the ball is bad. He's just saying that it is kind of, or it's not even that it's kind of, it's very different for guys who aren't used to a ball being as soft, for example, because the softness of a ball has a lot to do with getting lucky bounces. For example, if a ball is super hard and has no give, it's going to clank if it hits the rim at all. Even if you're playing on professional rims like NBA teams are, if a ball has a softer, softer exterior, softer touch, whatever the fuck it is, it will be a little kinder to you when it hits the rim. And also when it comes down to dribbling the basketball, if a ball is harder, it will come off the ground harder ball is softer it will take more force to make it come up now I think every player every player kind of has their own uh, their own preference when it comes to that but I think ultimately guys in the NBA kind of just play with whatever the ball is going to be like at the gym so it's going to be on the newer side like I think that even just like the basketball being new all drastically affects how it handles because you haven't had time to wear it down to break it in to get used to it because like everything it's like when you first take a new basketball out of the box it's like slimy it's like you're holding a condom it's just wet it's gross it's sliding all over the place you can't even spin it on your finger because it'll just fucking slide off it's not fun and it takes a little bit of time for the ball to be usable now of course these teams have equipment guys who are kind of responsible for that i know that i was watching a monday night telecast with peyton and eli the um the manning brought the manning brothers Broadcast and they were, and Peyton was talking about how in the cult, when he was with the Colts, his equipment guys had their own little routine to try to make sure that the ball was usable. Because he was talking about how, like, the home teams or back in the day, the home teams weren't allowed to scuff up the football or anything like that. I can't remember the specifics, but obviously, when you're playing with something that has the type of texture, the type of consistency that a does whether it's a basketball whether it's a baseball whether it's a football it's going to affect your performance I don't think that's as big of an issue as it is with or I don't again I don't not an issue but a factor I still think that the officiating is more of a factor than anything else because guys are going to the basket taking wild shots thinking that they're gonna get the foul call and then they ultimately just they just don't they just don't and then some of it of course is guy's just not making shots to begin the season. So, with all of that out of the way, we're going to talk about... I'm going to take a sip of coffee first. I've been talking for 30 minutes straight. Fucking break. So, one of the biggest stories of the summer was Carmelo Anthony signing with the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, someone like me, I was not too sold on Carmelo being a huge difference maker for the Lakers. I didn't think he was going to help them win a championship, mainly because I didn't think that the team was strong enough collectively to win a championship. And Carmelo, it seemed like LeBron was taking him along for the ride to have another floor spacer and to also just like help out his buddy. Because even if I don't think the Lakers are going to win, they're still championship contenders. Vegas still thinks they're going to win. I'm pretty sure Vegas gave them better odds than Milwaukee. To begin this year, it's like it was the Nets at like plus 250, the Lakers at like plus 400, and then the Bucks were at like plus 600 or something and I'm like, dude, the Bucks are clearly better than the Lakers. But then again, Vegas exists just to make money. So, what what do I know? What do they know? Who fucking cares? At any rate, I didn't think that the Lakers collectively outside of Carmelo Anthony were good enough to compete for a title. Much like the Nets and the Bucks, they have had their own host of issues to begin the season. At the time of this recording, they are four and three. They have just rattled off two straight victories. So shout out to them. Their most recent one came against the Houston Rockets. Now I know Houston is a shitty team. Absolutely uh, trash, garbage, dookie. I'm just kidding. I'm going kind of hard. But at any rate, the Rockets fucking stink. They're a stinky bunch. They are a stinky bunch of guys on a basketball court. And the Lakers got a 10-point victory over them the other night. Not the most impressive victory by any means, but when you're a team that's struggling, and you're a good team that's struggling, you need these easy games against teams that are significantly worse than you are. It's a confidence booster. Helps you build your rhythm because you're not going to be going up against a fucking super intimidating defense. They also don't have many weapons on offense, so you don't have to worry about that. It just makes the margin of error a lot larger. You don't have to play perfectly like how you would against the six, the Sixers or the Suns or anything like that. You need gimme games. Good teams need games against bad teams. It's just how it is. They need to win those games against bad teams. So the Lakers did just that. They won 95-98. The most notable performance, however, came from Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony is now the def- the... He's effectively the Lakers' sixth man. Sixth man, pardon me. This this evening or whenever the fuck the game was. Anthony Davis, LeBron and Russ combined for 31 and 20 is 31 and 20 is 51. But no one else really contributed. You got 2 points from Avery Bradley, 9 points from Kent Bazemore. The only other bench guys to score were DeAndre Ayton with 8 and Austin Reeves with 2. Carmelo comes off the bench and puts in 23 points. He shot 8 of 14 and 5 of 8 from 3. Even went to the free throw line 4 times where he missed twice. Additionally, he added 4 blocks and 2 steals. This was the best game that Carmelo Anthony has had all season long. And he's having a pretty fucking good season so far. Right now, he's a little bit shy of 17 points. Shooting 50% from the field and 52% from 3. Now, there was an article on ESPN covering this courtesy of Dave McMenamin. The title, Carmelo Anthony already fitting in with the Lakers, clears up misconception about his reputation, saying, quote, I'm easily adaptable. Now, second paragraph in, Carmelo Anthony says this, quote, I think people don't really understand me. I think there's a misconception out there about me and not being able to adapt to situations, but I'm easily adaptable, man, to any situation. This is... A, and of course, and they mentioned this in the article. This is a huge shift in mindset from Carmelo Anthony. I, and I think that if he's playing like this, he makes the Lakers better, especially if they're going to be injury depleted throughout the year. Now, I know this just contradicts what I said, but hear me out here. If you remember a couple of years ago, and if you don't, I'm going to remind you because it's nicely mentioned in this article. In 2017-18, this is, this is, I'm reading this from the article. In 2017-18, Carmelo played for the Oklahoma City Thunder and started 78 games for a Thunder team that wound up losing in the first round of the playoffs. He scoffed at playing a bench role for that team, famously equipping back who, me, to a reporter asking about his willingness to be a reserve. I can't remember this video off the top of my head. So that means I can't, I can't see if, Melo was being a little tongue in cheek about it, but then again, this Carmelo Anthony was like three or four years younger than the current Melo. Oh, dude, even earlier than that, his first year with the Thunder, he was thirty three years old, and one, not even one year removed from averaging twenty two points with the Knicks. At that point, he was only four seasons removed from averaging twenty seven points and five seasons removed from capturing the scoring title at twenty eight point seven points. He was still, Melo was still, Melo was still holding on to the idea that he was in his prime and that he didn't yet have to adapt. And athletes kind of maintain this mindset up until they begin to show signs of slowing down. Carmelo did not really slow down during his final years with the Knicks, he still was consistently. The best player on those teams putting 20, 22, 24 points up shooting about his career average. We're looking at 44, 45, like around, you know, 43 between between 43 and 46 percent from the field. That's where he was at. He goes to Oklahoma City and everything changes for him. He has his lowest scoring season ever. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That first year with the Thunder at that point was the fewest points per game Carmelo Anthony had ever averaged. He also shot 40.4% from the field, which was his lowest shooting clip of his career up until that point. It actually remains the worst shooting clip of his career by a tenth of a percent. Up until then, Melo didn't think he needed to play any other role because he was still capable of filling the role of being one of the first options for the offense. After that, things, you know, changed. He went to Houston, only played 10 games. He then signed with the Blazers where he got a taste of serving this bench role. His first year he was a starter, the second year he wasn't. And Carmelo was still pretty good. In that second season with Portland, averaged 13 points, shot about 41% from 3, and he did all of that in fewer than 25 minutes a game. So you see that, you're 30 you're a 36-year-old Carmelo Anthony. You know, that you don't have to retire yet. Because you're putting up low double digits on respectable shooting clips. And you're not really playing a tremendous amount of minutes. So you're like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't. Maybe it's okay to take a step back every once in a while. Especially when you're someone like Carmelo, who is a first ballot Hall of Famer. One of the most significant um, scorers of all time. He's like, I think he just recently broke into the top nine. I think, like, we'll go down in history as one of the greatest players to ever play the game. I'm pretty sure he was in the uh, NBA 75 team as well. So that says a lot about Carmelo Anthony right there. You don't have to burn out and retire just because you had one-off season. Like, he, he obviously can still contribute. And up until recently... There was kind of, I guess, a misconception about Carmelo Anthony, but like, obviously he's become way more receptive to adapting to different roles when that clearly was not the case a couple of years ago. So uh, I just want to shout out Carmelo for this exceptional growth that he's exhibiting. Obviously, as a basketball player, like it takes a lot for to be someone of his stature and to kind of move on to the next chapter. Of your career. Of course, the fact that Anthony's misconception comment came after playing the team that gave up on him three years ago might not have been so coincidental. Um, I think for me now, it's just being mentally prepared for whatever is being thrown at us and the rest will take care of itself. It's basketball. It's basketball at that point. If you're open, shoot it. If not, make a play for yourself. Make a play for others. The more that I can simplify the game of basketball, the easier the game becomes, especially at this stage of your career. Uh yeah, you know, there there's really nothing more to say about that. That's basically rehashing what I had just said previously. Like this is the next chapter of your career. You don't have to go out and do everything. You did that already. You and talk about Melo, Mello has earned the right to take a step back, to allow other guys to be at to be at the forefront of their teams. Of course even if that wasn't going to be the case this season it was going to be the case this season when you're going up <laughs> against or when you're going up and your teammates are LeBron AD and Russell Westbrook so that's that um, there really wasn't much uh there really wasn't that much additional news outside of guys entering the um the health and safety protocols Kevin Love, Tobias Harris and Chris Middleton all went into health and safety protocols within like 36 hours of one another, which was quite impressive, quite impressive. Uh, there was another report that came out and said that um, Zion Williamson is still like a couple of weeks away from making his return. I think two to three specifically. Um, other than that, there's really. There's really nothing else happening I did pull up a couple of articles that I found on the good old fashioned content farm that is bleacherreport.com the first one five stars who could be surprisingly dealt at the 2022 NBA trade deadline I looked at this and then I saw the picture of Deandre Ayton and I said oh boy I have I have to look at this I didn't look at all of it though but I scrolled down and I saw the first person on this list was Yusuf Nurkic the center for the Portland Trailblazers. Nurk is averaging I think like 12 points 10 boards something like that but Portland is very 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 bad defensively and it's not just Nurk definitely not just Nurk I read an article I think it was from Kevin O'Connor who was talking about the Portland Trailblazers' new defensive philosophy. He said what they're doing is they are now blitzing a lot more pick and rolls. They are having the big come up higher on the three-point line to basically cut off the ball handler at the earliest point, which is an effective way of guarding the pick and roll. This isn't like some forbidden scheme that coaches don't run, but coaches refrain from running it if they don't have an athletic big. Who can run that type of coverage. Someone like Yusuf Nurkic, who is not tremendously athletic to begin with, also is still recovering from that horrific leg injury he suffered. He is simply not mobile enough to defend the pick and roll like that. You can get away with that kind of coverage if you're the Bucks and you have Drew Holiday and Giannis guarding pick and rolls. Not if you have Damian Lillard and Yusuf Nurkic. And as Kevin O'Connor alluded to in greater detail, you can see why the personnel changes or the personnel that the Blazers have are simply not conducive enough to being a good defensive team. They have good defenders like Robert Covington and Norman Powell, but collectively, they just have too many flaws. Now, a little bit further down in this article, it mentions three guys who could potentially be um, targets for Portland in a potential trade. Miles Turner, Christian Wood, and Jakob Pertl. Miles Turner, of course, the arguably the best defensive center in the NBA right now is the force in the middle of the paint for the Indiana Pacers of these three names. If you're the blazers and you're looking to bring in a defensive center, I'm looking at miles Turner. Um, maybe even Steven Adams, potentially um, still I'm kind of, I don't even really know about Steven Adams. Just especially if you have the opportunity to get miles Turner to bring in a guy who is without a doubt, going to make your defense significantly better on the inside. This dude's averaging like three blocks a game. He averaged three and a half last season and led the league. He's the right right guy for Portland. I just don't know how likely that kind of trade is because you're going to have to part with a lot. The Indiana Pacers know that they have a defensive powerhouse, a singular defensive powerhouse, and they're not just going to give him away. I mean, they might because they still have Sabonis and they still have um, Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert. But Miles Turner is more than good enough to be the defensive anchor for that team. It just gets down to will him and Sabonis work together. And at some point, if, you know, Indiana feels that's not the case, they may relinquish some of the levers they have when bargaining with other teams. But Portland, if they can get Miles Turner... I would do that in a heartbeat. Christian Wood is also mentioned on here. I don't I don't think Christian Wood fits in Portland very well. I don't think you need another scorer. You don't need another playmaker. You have Dame and you have CJ. That's enough. I promise you. That's enough playmaking. You just need guys to do the little things, which is also where Jakob Purtle comes in. Jakob Purtle of course, being a San Antonio Spur, being European, being someone who has studied under Greg Popovich, he knows how to do all the, all of the little things. Set solid screens, roll to the cup, make yourself open, fill up the space. I just think that he is a less effective defender than Miles Turner. Um, but then again, I also don't really see if a Nurkic trade is feasible at this point because he doesn't, he's not showing enough to make teams want him, Right. I mean, he's definitely not bad by any means, like 13 points, 12 rebounds, a little more than a steal per game, or about 1.5 steals a game, shooting 53% from uh, from the field, but he's also a detriment defensively, and his offense isn't good enough for him to be a detriment on defense. Now, if we start talking about the use of Nurkic from a couple of years ago, pre-injury, a guy who can average like 15 points, 9 boards, Four, five assists, maybe, then we're having a different conversation. But unless that happens, I'm not I'm not too sold on it. I then scrolled down even further and I noticed DeJounte Murray and I'm like, what the fuck are this why why are the Spurs gonna trade DeJounte Murray? I don't I don't see a world where the Spurs trade DeJounte Murray unless he comes out and he asks for it. And then this author started talking about Joshua Primo, the 18-year-old rookie who has played like fifteen minutes <laughs> He's played 15 minutes for the Spurs to begin the season. I don't, I, I get that you're trying to rebuild, but why would you part with Murray, who's still only 25, in favor of someone who literally just graduated high school, is barely old enough to vote? I don't foresee this happening. If I'm the Spurs, I'm not training DeJounte Murray unless he walks into the office and puts a gun to my head and says, get me the fuck out of here right now, which I also don't know if that's going to happen because why would he want to leave? He's not at the stage where he has to go somewhere else and bring it and, you know, ring chase. He's 25. He's just entering his prime. He's not even as good as he's going to be. Right now, he realistically could still be the face of the Spurs rebuild. Uh, the Spurs rebuild. So I'm kind of out on any potential deal for uh, Dejounte Murray, Christian Wood. We already talked about. Um, teams like Golden State, Dallas, and Portland, and the Clippers could all use a center upgrade and have a combination of young talent and or draft picks to send in return. With with this, um, I'm just gonna check the Blazers off. Blazers don't need him. I don't think. Uh, at least, I don't think, because he doesn't patch any of their holes. I kind of have the same the same thoughts with Dallas. The only reason I could see Dallas trading for Christian Wood is if this back injury that Kristaps Porzingis is dealing with persists and severely debilitates him. Um, but even then, like Dallas is piss poor on defense, or at least is supposed to be. Let me just go ahead and double check and make sure they still suck on defense. All right, well, I lied. They're the 10th best team in the league in terms of defensive efficiency. So they've actually done a total flip. Their offense is what's holding them back for right now. So maybe, just maybe, maybe we could see a trade for Christian will going to Dallas. I think him on the Golden State Warriors would be absolutely fucking incredible. Um, Like... Steph, Clay's coming back. He got Draymond as well. I mean James Wiseman was cleared for practice or to return to practice and could return at some point. I don't know when that's going to be, but you take Christian Wood and you add 20 more points to that offense with the defense they already have. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, no, I would not want to face them. Um I do think that the Clippers could use Christian Wood uh, even beyond when Kawhi Leonard comes back at that point, you're acquiring him just to mitigate any additional loss offensively because Christian Wood could step in and him and Paul George would, they'd work fine together. I 100% think that they would be a fantastic duo. Um, PJ Washington. I don't really know much about the Hornets situation. So I'm kind of just going to skip this one, mainly because I don't know if PJ Washington is that much of a contributor to any team at this point. Um, It's going to be weird. It's going to be weird. Uh, DeAndre Ayton. Dude, if the fucking Phoenix Suns traded DeAndre Ayton, first of all, um, I would be happy for him in the sense that, well, I can't even say I'd be happy for him because they could send him to fucking Siberia. Like, they fucked up by not giving him an extension. And you're only trading him to spite him. Which doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, the Phoenix Suns and I don't know what happened with that huge bombshell report that was supposed to come out about owner Robert Sarver. I don't I don't understand the rationale. Like okay, you fucked up. You didn't give Deandre Ayton a max extension. But then you're going to trade him on some petty shit? Like, just re-sign him this summer. Say, listen, I apologize. We should have extended you by the deadline. Please accept this max offering from us. And then, boom, you retain contender status for two, three, four more years. Because, listen, dude, you're not replacing DeAndre Ayton. Unless you trade him for, like, Christian Wood or something. But even then, Ayton fits so well. With what Phoenix does. He's an, I feel that he's irreplaceable. Because you had the number one overall pick. He shouldn't have been. It should have been Luka. But you had. even though he wasn't. Even though he shouldn't have been the number one pick. He was still going to go top three. It was, it was very clearly him, Luka, Trey in some order. Aiton was a beast in college. And he comes to the NBA. And he adjusts his game for this franchise. He is more of a Clint Capella type player compared to anything that people thought he was going to be coming out of college. And you don't get those kinds of guys. They don't come around that frequently. There's a reason why there are only a handful of Clint Capella type players in the league, because you either get them, you get a superstar like Joel or Jokic or Kat, or you have someone who just doesn't contribute at all. The Suns really fucked up by not, um, by not re-signing DeAndre Ayton. But then again, the title of this article is five stars who could be surprisingly traded. Like I to me, the only surprise, well, I guess uh Murray as well. Murray is a, is definitely a surprise. Him and uh DeAndre Ayton are the two biggest surprises for me. And then oh god. Whew. So another another piece that I spotted was the 10 biggest disappointments of the NBA season so far written by Dan Favale. I love, I love So much. I love them. I love them. They're the best because I am although I don't really partake in early season hot takes. I, I fucking love them. I love them. They are literally what drives all of talk radio, All of live television, sports talk television, it is what drives that type of content. And there is inherently a lot of money in it, especially if you're, you know, on TV. But I just think, I just think it's great. I love, I enjoy seeing people overreact as long as it's like tasteful, of course. Like having been a Nuts fan, I can't tell you how many fucking seasons I've watched where after three games, people are like, okay, fire the coach. It's a wrap. Fire the coach. Fire Steve Nash. Fire Kenny Atkinson. Yo, send James Harden to the gulag because this guy can't fucking get a bucket. uh, Strap Nick Claxton to a fucking rocket and shoot him into the sun. Like, uh, what are you getting so worked up over it for? Fucking relax. It's been three games. Anyway, we're going to start Euro fouls. (laughs) Euro fouls are the take fouls that NBA players take to stop a fast break from happening. If you see CJ McCollum foul at half court, that is a thing that happens over in Europe, and it is fucking terrible. It sucks. It sucks. Um, I I want to see if he mentions this like in the blurb. Give the offensive team two free throws and the ball whenever that happens. Yeah. One, yeah. One hundred percent because when you commit an intentional foul in basketball there are there are consequences like you can't just foul people before the ball gets inbounded for example because then you get two shots on the ball like you actually have to be attempting to make a play in order to get the intentional foul of course it's different at the end of the game but even then if you're trying to foul a player you're still making a play on the ball when you're taking fouls at half court you're not making a play on shit. You're literally just sitting on your thumb. Two free throws, the ball, clip it and ship it. I 100% want to see them eradicate this type of foul. I think it sucks. The next one too much switching in Boston. Zeroing in on the Celtics defense is actually unnecessary. They're a collective disappointment with an offense that ranks in the bottom 10 of points per score. Still, despite crawling into the top half of defensive efficiency following their double overtime loss to the Wizards, the Celtics have to rethink their approach at the less glamorous end. Head coach Ime Yudoka has them switching almost everything. There is a real 2020-2021 Sacramento Kings feel to the frequency which, with which they f- switch assignments. The Celtics, just happened, <laughs> the Celtics just happened to have the personnel to do it without seeming so aimless. Uh, if the, all right, well, if we're doing this, for the Boston Celtics, um, we have to do it for the Brooklyn Nets too because the Nets, not all the time, and less than what they did last season. But the Nets are a team that also switches everything, and I hate to admit it, but like switching doesn't always work. It, it ju- just fight over the screen. If anything else, just fight over the screen and see what happens because if you switch. There's still the chance that the other guy doesn't recover onto his man. The helper doesn't come up from the baseline or the guy doesn't rotate over from the wing. There's just so much that can go wrong. It's like, I get it. You want to switch sometimes, but read the room, guy. If your fucking team can't switch, don't be switching. Now, speaking of the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets offense is uh, the third disappointment. I am 100% in on this written, though. This was written on... Oh fuck! November first. That was yesterday, or Monday. If that's the case, yeah, the Nets' offense uh, is definitely stinky right now, mainly because James Harden is struggling to bounce back. Um, and guys just aren't—you know—guys just aren't playing particularly particularly well. It was different when they played Detroit. There were a lot of fuck. I can't I'm trying to switch my legs. I fall off the fucking chair. Um, it it was a bunch of guys off the bench making easy shots. I really enjoyed watching the Nets play the Pistons. It was one of those gimme games that they had kind of like the Lakers against the Rockets where it just allowed everyone to get into a rhythm. But collectively, the Nets have so much to work on offensively, especially without Kyrie Irving. Um, but most of it, again, comes back to James Harden. I'm not going to talk about this too much because I made a whole fucking video about it. Uh, absence of a secondary creator on the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah. Yeah. The Mavericks offense is arguably just as disappointing as the Brooklyn Nuts offense. And the team just does not have... They uh, they don't have enough talent on offense as it is, especially if Christoph Porzingis is going to be in and out of the lineup. And even worse than that, if he's going to be in the lineup and simply not contributing. Uh, Michael Porter Jr.'s offense, I really know very little About MPJ's offense. And I'm just going to head over to Basketball Reference. And we're going to see. What's on with that. This is the same guy who just signed a $200 million extension. By the way. Oh my god. 10 points. 34.5% shooting. 23.3% from three. 62.5% from the free throw line. This guy... Fucking fleeced the Denver Nuggets. Oh my God, dude. That's so embarrassing. Dude. Dude, you. Uh, this is an actual disgrace. Like, Jamal Murray is out. This is the perfect opportunity for Porter Jr. to be like, hey, I'm just as good, dude. I am the. I am legitimately the third best player. On this team. You can be like, I'm good enough to hold down the offense when one of these guys is sitting or both of these guys are sitting, however you want to do it. And he just simply has not done that. That's insane. You know, maybe Michael Porter Jr. is one of those guys who is who's having his game affected by the new basketball. I don't know. Anthony Davis at center lineups. Um, I really don't want to talk about this. I fucking hate. Uh, yeah, no. What's going on here? What else is that? I'm just going to skip that one entirely. I'm sorry. I don't. I just. The Anthony Davis at center lineup. Is just like. People have been talking about it. Forever. dude. Literally forever. The Clippers. Three point shooting. 31.3%. Or 31.1%. From behind the arc, that's insane. I don't even know what like the Clippers' record is. What are we? What are we doing out in L.A.? They're two and four. I didn't realize this. Twenty fifth in offense in scoring volume, twenty sixth in scoring efficiency, third in three point attempts at forty one, but twenty first. In shooting at 32.4%. Paul George is... Paul George and Luke Kennard are literally the only two reliable three-point shooters. Nick Batum. Everyone else is below 30. Everyone else is below 30%. That's horrible. That's horrible. Although, they really didn't have like shooters like that. You know? Maybe they did. I mean, Batum shot 40% last year. Marcus Morris is the most intriguing. The most intriguing drop off because like this dude is consistently at like forty percent. He was at 47% last year, a little bit below 38 for his career. Um, you know, maybe the clip are the Clippers playing with like an entirely different basketball, or are they just playing with bricks? I that's the best joke I can come up with at this point. Slow start from the Suns, yeah. Full disclosure, the Phoenix Suns were my preseason title pick. So while I wouldn't call this personal, I'm dying inside. That's a courtesy of Dan. I didn't think that the Suns were, they weren't my title pick, but I felt they were the best team in the West. Better than Utah, better than Denver. Of course, that's with Denver not being fully healthy. That's with the the Clippers not being fully healthy. What do we got here? The Suns have served up. League average offense while attempting to implement new stuff. They're sub twenty seven percent on above the break threes. Um ugh. yeah. Damian Lillard shooting. We talked about this. We talked about this earlier, but you know, some guys just guys just bounce back. Guys just bounce back. Oh, wait, hold on, De'Aaron Fox. I haven't talked about De'Aaron Fox at all this season, which I guess is what happens not only when you play on the Kings. But when you live on the East Coast as I do, and you don't pay attention to any teams from the on the West Coast, let alone the fucking Sacramento Kings. So De'Aaron Fox, ooh, shooting sub forty percent. After averaging twenty five and seven last year, he's down to eighteen and six, shooting seventeen percent from three. Ugh, dude. Maybe. Like Paul George's basketball theory has some actual merit to it, because like every time I look at someone's shooting splits, they're just they suck. They just suck. That's that's intense. Anyway, I think that's gonna be it for today. I covered everything that I want to cover, even threw in some little uh, bonus, some bonus stories in there for you guys. As always, thank you so very much for listening. Everything that I'm associated with is down in the description That social medias. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, go ahead, leave a rating and a review. It helps me out a ton. Follow the show on whatever other uh, podcast platform that you listen on. And again, thank you as always, and I'll catch you in the next one.